The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. God, we come to you right now as we open your word in amazement at the God that we serve. Lord, we don't serve an angry dictator, but a loving king. And it is our joy to pledge our allegiance, if you will, to you, to bow before your throne as members and constituents of your kingdom, and to say, may your will be done in this church, even in this sermon, as it is in heaven. God, when we see what you've done for us, how can we not but desire to serve you? So may your word lord over us this morning. May your spirit be our teacher. May the wisdom and ideas of men fall away, and may your church be equipped to serve you this morning. So I pray, God, for myself that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our King and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, guys, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. But we're going to have this, unlike what we would normally do, for example, we will have this up on the screen for you. We're doing something, as, as you guys know, a little bit different in this season, and I'm going to get into that um, right now. But we're going to start first in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And it says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Heritage Christian Fellowship exists to exalt the Lord, to equip his saints, to engage the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the mission statement of Heritage Christian Fellowship, the purpose of Heritage Christian Fellowship. Why does this church even exist? What is it that we're called to? In short order, it is to exalt the Lord, to equip his saints, and to engage the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And right now, we're taking a short time out from our normal walking through currently the book of 2 Corinthians um, to kind of pause and get, if you will, all on the same page and looking at a series on our mission and our vision. Um, it's very different from what we would normally do. I'm not a very, um, I'm not a vision or, or, excuse me, not a series type preacher. I would rather just go through the scriptures that's referred to as expositing. I would rather exposit the scriptures and just work through them verse by verse. It's more my style. Um, but just o- over the years, man, our church has been through a lot. We've come a long way from the little church meeting in Jewett Elementary School's gym to what the Lord's doing now. 
And, and some of you have been around since day one, and, and, and so you understand maybe even some of the cultural changes, things we've been through, why we emphasize things. You've, you've heard me teach, and, and so you have an understanding of our values and what we hold dear, but, but some of you haven't. A lot of you are, are new, maybe only in the last year or two. And so there's benefit to coming together and just sort of getting on the same page. So, so we're just taking a brief time out, started last week and we'll end it in two more weeks, to just understand what is it that we as a church, not just the church corporately throughout the world, though all of these would certainly apply, but, but this specific church, us, this family of Christ, what is it that we're called to? What is our mission And then what are the core values that shape what we do? This is not a series about trying to convince you to be on on par. Like this isn't like we're rolling out new stuff and, and I'm trying to talk you into it. But rather, this is about you gaining understanding of how this church operates, how we make decisions, what are the things that we value, how do we decide what ministries we're going to be a part of and what ones we're not, those sorts of things. So I think this is a valuable thing. And so last year we started with, we started out first with kind of a, an understanding of why a series like this can be beneficial to us as a church. The first being it creates unity in the body. I mean, people tend to cheer one another on and support one another and love one another and encourage one another more and compete with one another less when they realize they're on the same team, headed to the same direction, that our successes are together as a body and that we're going in the same direction. So to achieve unity, also to provide clarity. When we understand what our mission is, when we understand what our calling is, it makes yes and no much more easy. Um, if, if a ministry comes and says, would you like to be involved in what we're doing? Or a, a missions opportunity comes and says, we'd love to have Heritage on board. Well, when we understand our mission, what God has called us to do, and we understand what our values as a church are, it makes it really easy to determine, man, that might be a good thing, but that's not our thing. That's not on the same page as what God has called us to. And, and this affects a lot of different things from the people that we hire. What is the heart? When, when we, we just hired a new children's pastor here recently, and a lot of our time in the interview process was, was making sure that the person that we're hiring is on board already with these same sorts of calling in their life. Um, it, it helps us determine how we'll spend money, um, where we will invest our funds as a church. We're looking for things that will accomplish the mission that God's called us to. And then finally, it encourages momentum. Because when the vision is clear, we understand where we're going. We're no longer content to just sit and kind of float around and, and hope we get somewhere one day. But no, we know this is what we're called to. This is where we're going. This is what we value. And so there can be momentum when we all gain a kind of a, a similar understanding of what God has called us to. And so last week, we started out with this understanding of why we're doing this, what the benefits of this season are, um, and then we dove right into it. So if our mission statement is that Heritage Christian Fellowship exists to exalt the Lord, to equip the saints, and to engage the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ, last week we talked about the first area of that, the idea of exalting, and that we are when, if you really boiled it down, what is the purpose of man or as, as uh, the, the founding fathers, if you will, of Christianity have declared for centuries? What is the chief end of man? It is to exalt the Lord, to worship God. And we kind of broke that down a little bit last week about what that means by going through what we're referring to as our core values under each of these understandings. 
So for example, with regards to the, the idea that we exist to exalt the Lord, what are the core values that heritage um, holds to that shapes how we achieve this? Uh, number one, we're a gospel-centered church. And, and what that means is, is that we don't worship God to get his attention. We don't worship God to gain his favor. Maybe you remember that old story in the Old Testament with Elijah against the prophets of Baal and they built the two altars and they wanted to see which God was going to send fire down to ignite the altars. And so Elijah allows the prophets of Baal to go first and and they go through a massive series of worship and self-flagellation, beating one another, cutting one another, trying to prove to God that they are so sincere and that they are so devoted in hopes that their intention and their sacrifice will prompt God to move. That's what they're doing. And Elijah's mocking him. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he doesn't hear you. That's literally what he says. But, but what you see is really a snapshot of religion in general. And, and humans have done this for years. It, it's really what our natural proclivity is. If we do this, we earn that. And if you think, well, I don't do that, well, think about how you react when things go wrong. When tragedy comes, don't we sometimes have that innate, like, it, it's just a natural reaction to go, what is it I've done that has caused this to happen? I mean, it, it, it's a very natural instinct and it's what we refer to as religion. But, but when we say that we're a gospel-centered church, what we're saying is, is that it's the reality that God has already given his favor to us. God has already shown his love to us. As Romans 5 says, he has demonstrated his love to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's nothing left for us to do to gain his favor because he has already given all of it freely. And so we don't exalt God because we're trying to earn something that he's already freely given. But when we worship God, it is in response to the love that he's given. And it may seem like a small nuance, but it makes all the difference in the world. We exalt and worship Jesus because he is worthy of praise and because he has lavished us with his grace. Amen, worshipers? So we are a gospel-centered church. Number two, Heritage is a church that seeks to worship authentically. I got to speed this up or my intro is going to be just redoing last week's sermon. But last week, what we did talk about was in the book of John, where Jesus has this interaction with the woman at the well, and he says to her, in response to where are people to worship? Do we go to Jerusalem to worship? Do we go there to worship? And he responds to her by saying, no, the day is coming when you'll no longer go to a place to worship, but God is speaking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we broke those two down. What does that mean? In spirit, meaning with infused hearts, meaning emotion. So like what we just spent time doing wasn't a concert. That it is important that we come before the Lord with singing. You can read through the Psalms. And first of all, not the, the Psalms are the grand example of this, are they not? I mean, this is David using the, the contemporary music, if you will, of that day as a way of expressing his heart to God. Sometimes his expressions are fearful. Sometimes his expressions are remorse and repentance. And sometimes his expressions are just declaration that God is good. But God is honored by and delights in, quite practically, our singing. And so we sing, and everyone sings. Music is an emotional thing, and it is intentionally designed by God and for God. And so we worship him in song, but not just in song, but also in truth, it says. Or in other words, not just with infused hearts, but with informed minds. 
So we understand what God has done for us, and we desire then to worship God in, in way more than just a service on a Sunday. But the worship service, that's what we call this when we get together. We call it the worship service. But really, worship service should exist far beyond the walls of the church. That's where Romans, the book of Romans, which probably the best of any book in the Bible, just this incredible declaration of the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it comes to Romans chapter 12, and Paul says that we are to lay our lives down as a living sacrifice. And he says, which is your reasonable act of worship? Or, or more literally, it just makes sense. It, it just doesn't, it just makes sense when we see that God gave everything for us that we would not lay our lives down for him as well. And so, we understood, we talked about it last week, that everyone here is a minister. There's no hierarchy. It's not the paid professionals and then everyone else. And we'll be talking about that more here in just a minute. But the idea that as we leave this place today, you're doing, we are gathered as the church and then you're going to go do church everywhere you go as you continue to offer your own life as a sacrifice of praise to God in everything that you do. Some of you will wait tables tomorrow for the glory of God. You will serve people and make sure that the food is done well and you will show kindness and grace to people as they eat a meal so that God may be glorified through your changed heart. Some of you might go lead cities or, or work at the airport or whatever it is that you might do for a living. In everything you do, it is an offering of worship to God who has saved you. And then finally, we talked about the fact that heritage is a kingdom-minded church, meaning that we exist to build the kingdom of God, not just the kingdom of heritage. And so our goal is not to trademark heritage and to make heritage a massive entity. Our our primary desire is not that heritage become grand and well-known, but that God is exalted, that his name is lifted up. And so beyond all of that, we we have opportunities to to partner, and we at Heritage in particular here have had a rare opportunity to develop really deep friendships um, with churches throughout this very valley, but also to be able to network with churches throughout the nation and even throughout the world to be able to serve them. Not too much of a sneak preview, but next week we'll even be talking about it. We have, a, we have a sister church in Uganda. You guys know this. They've just been given a formal eviction notice from their building. They have till December to get out. And so next week, I'm saving it for the engage the world part, but we're, we're going to talk about the reality that, then here's our brothers and sisters in need. And, and, and I'm going to present to you and talk to you guys, and we're actually going to take a love offering for the people in Uganda. We want to buy them some property. And help them to have their own place where they can be solidified and be able to stay in, in, in a place where no one's threatening. And they just, you know, they've been threatened with this eviction stuff year after year after year after year. But this time it came through the court system. So they're going to have to move. But I love the idea that we're building someone else a church building before we build our own. I think that's awesome. We exist to build the kingdom of God, not just the kingdom of heritage, or, or, or to ex- not exalt the name of the pastor, but to exalt the name of our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Amen? And so today we want to consider the second aspect of our mission. If the mission statement of heritage is to exalt the Lord, to equip the saints, and to engage the world around us, today we want to look at the second aspect, which is to equip. And we're going to do this primarily through Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15, 16 in particular, um, with our primary focus being on the first couple. And, and again, just to reread them because they're worth it, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, by craftiness, and in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head and into Christ. So let's break this down for just a minute. We're considering the idea that part of the mission of Heritage Christian Fellowship and of any church in general is to equip the saints. And the the primary, the most go-to text for that mandate is here in Ephesians 4. It's a well-quoted text. Many of you have heard it many, many times before. And in particular, in verse 11, he says, he gave the apostles. Now, I want to break this down and help us gain a really clear understanding of what he's saying. So we need to start out really with the first word. And he, who's he? Well, he is Jesus Christ. This particular chapter starts off in verse 1 by saying, I, a prisoner for the Lord, which he's talking of Jesus here, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called, with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. This text, this particular section, Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus, and he's writing to them about unity in the body of Christ. And he's urging them, he's pleading with them, listen, you are one body, together, collected, serving one another, walk humbly with one another, bear one another's burdens. He's writing about this fervent desire he has as the father of this church to see unity and and kind of a family in this particular church in Ephesus. And so as he's writing through the necessity of this, this camaraderie, this community, and this unity there in the church, he says to it that Jesus Christ has given these gifts to the church. And he says in verse 11, he gave, Jesus Christ gave, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers. So to the church of Ephesus, he says, guys, Jesus has given you apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So what does that mean? Well, apostles, those are those who are commissioned by Jesus himself. Now, despite what you may hear from maybe some of our more Pentecostal brothers and sisters or some other denominations, the office of apostle is closed. There are no modern day apostles or any of that. The apostles are the specific saints, if you will, followers, disciples of Jesus Christ commissioned directly by him who witnessed and were taught by the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. That office is closed. So we would refer to them maybe, if I can use a historical analogy for our own culture, these are our founding fathers of our church here, the apostles. They're the ones who wrote the New Testament. This is who has been given to the church. Secondly, prophets. A prophet speaks and interprets on behalf of God, whether that be naturally And and I mean naturally versus supernaturally. So naturally being someone who is literally just speaking the word of God, declaring God's word, is acting in a prophetic nature. Uh, If you think about the prophets in the Old Testament, it wasn't that they were magicians or anything like that. It was that their job was to speak what God had given them to speak. So when you simply speak the word of God, you are behaving in a prophetic way, if that makes sense. But sometimes that may be um, supernaturally. Sometimes maybe the Holy Spirit gives you a prophetic word for someone or for the church. Either one of those might apply. But he says, Jesus has given us prophets. Jesus has given us evangelists. An evangelist is a heralder. 
Um, think of newsboys, for, not the band, but newsboys from back in the day that would stand on the corners uh, in, in the major cities and declare, the war is over, or, you know, the, and they would have the extra, extra, read all about it. Those, those are probably the best example we can think of of, of heralders. And, and a heralder is really someone who announces important events that are worthy of celebration. And so an evangelist is someone that is proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that just goes into the world, into the community, into our churches, and just announces and declares the reality of the resurrection and the gospel. Um, fourth, he's given us, Jesus has given us shepherds. Shepherds are uh, ministers, uh, pastors, elders, overseers, um, caretakers of a congregation. That's what that means. And then finally, Jesus has given the church teachers. Teachers, just what, they, what that means. One who instructs, imparts knowledge. So here's what he's saying so far. To the church, Jesus has given founders, prophets, heralds, pastors, and instructors. Why? Why has God given these to the church? Why are they given? What is their purpose? Verse 12 says, to equip the saints. This is where this mandate comes from, to equip the saints. And, and let me help you just continue to break this down more so you can see the nuances involved here. When the scriptures say that these offices have been given to the church to equip, what that means literally is to bring to completion for a specific or fit purpose. To, so to equip is to bring to completion for a fit purpose. So for example, right now all over the country there are football games going on in which they hope a quarterback is leading a team who has been equipped to lead that team against their opponent today. So all week, the coaches have given them game plans, workouts, rehearsals, film study, all of the even nutrition, all of this stuff in every area that they can possibly think would give them an advantage as they go into battle against the team that they're playing, and they're equipping them, everyone but the Raiders anyway, equipping them for victory to try to go out and win the battle. That's the idea. So, so think about it. But it's not just for a game in general. I mean, I mean they, they get specific coaching. They're watching specific films. They're learning specific plays, trying to exploit weaknesses. And, and it, it's a specific game plan for a specific game. And that's really the nuance here, that the church is equipped for a specific and for a fit purpose. And then it says, equipping who? To equip the saints. Anybody know who the saints are? That's us. Everybody raise your hand. You're a saint. That's what we're talking about here. The, the believers in Jesus Christ, followers, the members of the body of Christ in the church. So now let's recap where we're at so far, right? To the church, God has given founders, prophets, heralds, pastors, and instructors to equip, to bring to completion the church of Christ for a specific purpose. That's what that means. And then he goes on to say it again. It's so important the text actually says it twice. Because also in verse 11, or excuse me, in verse 12, it says, for the building up of the body of Christ. And it's another way of saying the exact same thing. When he says building up, that means literally to bring to completion. And when it says body of Christ, that means literally the congregation of Jesus Christ. So just in case I'm leaving anyone behind, what this text has said is that Jesus has given certain leaders and officers to his church to bring the church to completion for a specific fit purpose. That's what this means. Okay, so what is that purpose? 
What is the reason that this, this equipping takes place? Verse 12 says, to do the work of the ministry. Jesus has given different offices, pastors, evangelists, heralds, teachers, um, the apostles themselves, to the church to bring the church, the people of the church, don't think organization, think you, to bring you to completion for a fit purpose. And that purpose is to do the work of the ministry. And for some of you, that's, that seems second nature. For some of you, that doesn't make sense because it would seem like, wait, he gave us the professionals to do the work of the ministry. Why, why is he giving them to the church to equip me to do the work of the ministry? Aren't they in the ministry? Isn't that even what we call them as ministers? And, and this is why this is such a big deal that we need to understand, okay? Because throughout the history of the church, um, there has been a tendency if you just track with, and I'm literally, as we speak, I'm, I'm at Western Seminary working on my master's degree, and this semester our entire focus is on church history, gaining wisdom from church history. And you know what I've learned already so far? We're about in the Middle Ages somewhere right now, and um, I, I, you just start seeing that we've done the same things and made the same mistakes over and over and over. The, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The same cycles repeat themselves over and over and over. It's amazing. You think of it as ancient history and they have the exact same problems, the exact same issues that we still have today. It's fascinating. But what I've seen in it so far, even as we've been studying this, is that there's this, this constant um, proclivity to isolate the work of the ministry into the hands of a few paid professionals and to isolate the laity or, or the average congregant, if you will, from the church from that work. That happens over and over and over. I mean, you can start all the way back uh, even before this, but you could go back to the book of Mark where John is walking with Jesus. And he's like, Jesus, we saw some people, they were like baptizing and casting out demons, but they weren't with us, so we told them to stop. Like this, we are the ones who do, that's our gig we're, the, we're, we're with you, we're the professionals, we do this. And Jesus is like, why, why are you doing this? And, and you see this happen over and over throughout Scripture. It, it happened big time around the time of Constantine. Have you guys heard of Emperor Constantine? Massive, important thing in church history. But up until the time of Emperor Constantine, around the third century, the church was really weak. I mean, I mean, it was growing, it was empowered by the Spirit of God, um, but the church, there were very few places that had actual church buildings, though they did exist. There were houses of worship, if you will, um, but the church was largely made up of people that were poor, um, people that were largely powerless. Um, they were under constant persecution over and over and over. A new emperor would come, they would hope things would get better, then the persecution would come again. And so, so for the first three centuries, the church was just constantly being persecuted. But then when Emperor Constantine took over, and he was, depending on who you believe, he was converted, um, at that point, everything changed. And there was a big question that we're still trying to figure out. And that is, how will this movement that started with this humble shepherd and this, this little weak church that's meeting in houses and running from persecution, yet dependent constantly on the power of the Holy Spirit to do this mission, how are they going to, to navigate now? What is it going to look like for them now when no longer are they the powerless, but now they're, they're imperial? Because now Christianity is the state religion. 
And suddenly priests and, and the bishops, which those offices did exist before, but n- instead of like uh, poor men or, or people meeting in hiding, now they're wearing lofty robes and they're meeting in grand buildings decorated with gold. And, and suddenly it was advantageous to be a Christian. Suddenly the church had power and money and resources. And so still to this day, we are living out the effects, especially in our culture, of how that affects our life as Christians now that the powerless have become somewhat powerful. And one of the things that happened over and over and over is that the powerful started playing favorites. So so what you end up with is this. Instead of a group of believers gathered together understanding that they have received God's favor, you get this sort of attitude of now I'm God's favorite. And it's a big difference. And so you, you move on into even with the Catholic Church where work is suddenly, all the work of the ministry was only done by the priests, by the ordained. And all the laity, they, they can't read the Bible for themselves. They're not allowed to serve. You just come to church and, and you tithe. But other than that, we'll take care of everything. And really the Reformation was a pushback against that in large, to large degree. But we still do it. It's still part of our proclivity because, for example, in our culture today, most people believe that they are doing their duty as a Christian parent if they put their child in a Christian school, bring their child to Sunday school, and bring their child to VBS. I'm doing my Christian duty because I take my kids to church, and I put my kids in a Christian school, and I take them to VBS, and I send them to camps, and so I'm doing my job. Well, there's a lot of Old Testament texts about dads teaching your children. There's a lot of Old Testament texts about the family being the hub, if you will, for Christian maturity and discipleship, not not just a meeting on Sunday. But what has happened is, is somewhere along, especially in the mid-50s, but we don't have time to get into that history, we begin to kind of abrogate our responsibilities. And so for dads, for example, our job was to provide for the home and put food on the table. And mom's job was to nurture and care for, make sure they were covered and teeth brushed and hair combed. And they sent them off to school, and then the church's job was to teach them about Jesus. Well, that, that has nothing to do with what we see in the scriptures. And this is kind of that constant pull that has happened throughout church history that says, our job is the professionals do ministry, and, and everyone else just kind of goes on through life, and you just make sure you bring them to the professionals once in a while to, to do what they need to do. This is not... This is not what the scriptures say. The scriptures, for example, here say, yes, I have given you, if you will, in our current context, professionals. I I hate that word, but let's say, we'll use it for now. I've given you pastors, and I've given you evangelists, and I've given you teachers, I've given you shepherds, but I've given them to you so that they may equip you to do the work of the ministry. Not so that they can do the ministry for you, and you tithe and you're covered. Not so that they can do the ministry for you. You just come to church once in a while and you're good. But the idea is their job is to equip you so that you can go and live the mission that God has called you as an individual to do. It's a big deal. Changes everything. And so he says here, this idea, he goes into verse 13, is talking about the reality that we are never intended to remain spoon-fed Christians. Like your job as congregants here at Heritage is not to just make sure that you listen to what I say and do that. Your job is, as we come here together, my job, I should say, is to equip you to be able to serve and minister to God for yourselves. Not to remain spoon-fed. 
Not to remain dependent upon the pastors, dependent upon the professionals on what they are telling you to do. But look what he says in verse 13. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves, carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head and is into, and into Christ. This is a primary aspect of what we do here at Heritage. I mean, historically, what we've tended to look at, I'm talking about the, the American evangelical church, especially in the last 30 or 40 years. Historically, we've gauged Christian maturity by what we don't do. Like we would look at someone and go, man, that person, man, they're on fire. They, they love Jesus. They don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't watch movies. They don't even have a TV. Like looking at someone, it's, it's almost like a, a monastic type of faith. And we, we look at someone as being so mature because they're able to push back against all of these different things that are influences out there. The Bible never does that. The Bible rates maturity by the things that we're doing by our growing as disciples of Christ and how we're growing in the knowledge of him and in walking out our faith in serving him. This is what this text is about right here in Ephesians chapter four. A key aspect, primary aspect of the mission at Heritage Christian Fellowship is to equip the church of Heritage, the saints of Heritage, to do the work of ministry. So with that in mind then, what are the core values that shape this mission of equipping? What are the things that we value, that we hold to, that navigate us and help us determine how to go about this? I've got four and then we'll be done. Number one, heritage is theologically driven. Now that might sound redundant if you were here last week or if you caught up on the podcast, which I'd encourage you to if you were gone. Heritage is theologically driven. And and this is what this means. The whole duty of man, the whole purpose of man, our goal in life is to exalt God and to know him. To know God. And, and so what we know about God drives everything that we do. And we, we touched on this last week with regards to our statement of faith, uh, just kind of the evangelical confession, how that drives everything that we do here. We had a graphic up last week that has like gears, so how one turns the other. Someone said, I thought that was the sunshine. I didn't know what that was. No, those are gears. And our statement of faith, that, that's the idea that what we believe about God drives everything. It's just bad lighting. We're working on it. But anyway. So heritage is theologically driven. And we believe that the duty of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. And so what we know about God drives everything we do. But this is where it's really important. Listen, we emphasize knowing God as he is. Now hear me on this. We emphasize knowing God as he is, not crafting a God to our liking. Do you understand? I'm going to say that again. Here at Heritage, we value maybe this above just about anything else. Knowing God as he is, being careful not to craft a God to our own liking. The Bible says that we have been created in the image of God, and we dare not try to flip that around and start recreating God into the image of man. But there can be a tendency to do that. 
And what I mean by that is, is we could go through the scriptures and say, this is important to me and this we like and we love caring God and we love nurturing God and we love that God and then, oh, this is something about like wrath and sin and we'll, let's skip that part. We don't like that one. We like the Jesus who loves, but we don't want to talk about the Jesus at the times he was pointing his finger and flipping over tables either. And we have to be really careful about that. And so this is what I mean by that. There's a, uh, if you will, theological terms, exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is what we do. Eisegesis is what no one should do. Eisegesis means you take the scriptures. And so we open up the Bible and I want to read the scriptures and learn because this is where it happens. We believe, uh, we don't believe, this is the reality of it. This is not a book about us. This is a book about God. And in this book, God has, through his scriptures, revealed himself to us. So the way by which we know him is to know him through the revelation of himself that he has given us, this complete and total revelation, his word. And so when we come to the scriptures, our goal is not to do what's referred to eisegesis. And what that means is is take a text, read it, and try to figure out how this belief system or this value or this idea or desire that we have, how can we take what we want God to be with like and cram it into the text? So the idea being, I, I, that's what eisegesis means, taking something from the outside and putting it into the scriptures. The opposite of that is what we strive to do here by the grace of God. It's called exegesis. It means ex, it means to pull out. The idea is God has revealed himself here. And so when we approach the scriptures, our desire is to pull from the scriptures the understanding of who God has declared himself to be, not to take our own ideas and beliefs or opinions and cram them into the scriptures. Does that make sense? And one of the places that I hear this the most, and I understand their desire, it's a noble desire, but I'll have, I'll have people ask me a lot of times, what does heritage think about Calvinism and Arminianism? And like, they exist. I don't know. They, they both exist. No, but like, what do you teach? And to some degree, I understand that this could be considered a cop-out. I do. But, but our desire really is not to try to teach either one of them. Our desire is to go, today, I'm in Ephesians 4, verse 11. And I want to teach exactly what Ephesians 4, verse 11 says, regardless of what any uh, human-defined theological system might classify that as. If that happens to fit a Calvinistic doctrine at that time, so be it. If that happens to fit an Arminian doctrine at some point, so be it. If you don't know, have a clue what I'm talking about on either one of them, you're in a great spot. (laughs) But the reality is this. I mean, in that particular definition alone, that, that specific debate alone, there's clear tension in the Bible. There's passages that read about, I mean, Ephesians starts out talking about election and predestination and all these kinds of things. And you go, man, that reads Calvinistic. And so what our tendency can be is to say, what I want to do is change what that says and try to dull that down and make that passage sound, I don't know, more suitable to what I believe. And we will not do that here. By the grace of God, that is our desire to not do that. Let the text stand on its own regardless of what it says and allow the scriptures to lord over us as opposed to us lording over the scriptures. Amen. And so there's going to be other times that are going to talk. It's, people are going to be like, man, that sounds really Arminian. I can't believe he's reading that. Well, it's a real safe thing for me to do as a pastor because I can go, I just argue with God. It's not me. But this is our desire, that we know God 
as he reveals himself to us, not crafting a God into our own liking. Amen? Okay. Now, because the goal is that we know God, value number two, heritage promotes biblical literacy. Heritage promotes biblical literacy. God has given us his holy word that we might know him, and we believe the Bible to be the complete revelation of God and the ultimate authority, the scriptures right here. And so as a result, we place a high priority on the accurate study and teaching of the word on every possible level, whether it be here, whether it be in retreats, women's ministry, men's ministry, children's ministry in the room right now. We place a really high priority on the accurate teaching of the scriptures as they are. And so how is, what does that mean? Well, number one, it means our desire is to teach the scriptures in such a way that we as a church are learning to read the scriptures for ourselves. That, that, that you, you don't become dependent on me to spoon feed you all the time. But that as you're learning the themes of Scripture, that you might be able to read any passage, understanding the gospel, and see how Jesus is proclaiming his greatness and his gospel everywhere. And so to do that, though, you, you have to look through that same lens. Again, the understanding that the Bible is about God, not about us. Because we can approach the Scriptures and go, what does this say? What does this mean to me? I don't care what it means to us. I care what it means to God who wrote it. And so as a result, how do we accomplish this? Um, for one thing, this church invests heavily in training for its pastors and its teachers. Um, heavily. I have never been a part of a church nor seen a church that, that does as much as this church does to make sure that those who are teaching and those who are leading have the resources that they need and have the training that they need. Um, we are not a church that goes, you have your Bible and you have the Holy Spirit, that's all you need. That's true, and that's enough, amen, that's amazing. But, but we have been put in a position in history where there are amazing resources and incredible training available, and so we put a great deal of emphasis in continual study of God's Word, training and leadership. Um, this, I, I told you guys, I'll be blitzing out of here is the moment we say amen and, and going off to a conference, the pastors and I, to spend a couple of days together, networking working with some other pastors, just talking about how can we do better what we're already doing? How can we serve better? How can we understand the scriptures better? How can we spread the gospel farther? So we invest heavily in that. Um, we, we obviously, we do Sundays and Wednesday nights. Um, Sundays, well, you're here. <laughs> you don't really need to describe that too much. Wednesday nights are different though. Um, Wednesday nights, still gathering here, worship, communion, and all these things, but Wednesday nights with an emphasis on discipleship, more of a, okay, as we're, like right now we're in the book of Mark on Wednesday nights, so as we're going through the book of Mark and we see what Jesus is doing, and knowing that Jesus has called us to follow him, to duplicate ministry, if you will, how do we do this? What does this text in Mark teach us about how to follow Jesus? And, and I just, if I can just plug for a moment... I totally understand it's midweek, you're tired, the voice is on, I get all that stuff, right? But there is, so, Wednesday nights have been just phenomenal times uh, of just coming to the table of God, having communion together, worshiping together, studying the word together. Um, it's not always me that teaches, Pastor Sam taught this week, he crushed it. 
Um, I mean, there's just been some fantastic time getting in the Word. So maybe you came years ago, and, and I understand how it gets after a while. You just kind of, oh, I'm going to stay home. But, but I, I want to call you guys, man. Make an effort to come out and plug in and benefit from a time spent right in the middle of week, kind of a realigning, if you will. It's like going to the chiropractor. But um, join us on Wednesday nights for that. Also, um, we use in our children's ministry, you parents should know this, we use what's called the Gospel Project to minister to our kids. It's a uh, Bible study curriculum uh, by Lifeway, and it's unbelievable. It is, uh, I believe, without question, um, the best available Sunday school training in terms of the theology, the teaching part um, of the Bible that, that you could possibly get. And, and what's beautiful about it is if your kid starts right off the bat and then goes all the way up through, and we do it all the way through junior high, if they're through that entire thing, your children are going to be studying through the entire Bible something like five times by the time they get there. And, and what it does is it doesn't just start in Genesis and then slowly work its way through, but, but what it does is it'll take a theme. Uh, you would refer to this, some of you theologian type people, systematic theology. So for example, atonement. And it'll take a theme like atonement and lay it on top of the theme of the scriptures throughout. So it'll follow, let's study atonement as we work through. And so you get these big, broad, sweeping studies through the Bible. And then it'll go back, let's look at uh, sacrifices. And it'll go all the way through, whatever that particular theme happens to be. I don't remember, someone told me what it is right now, I don't remember, but... Um, the, the, the benefit is these kids are getting continually um, inundated with the gospel and with an understanding of the theme of Scripture. And i got to tell you guys, this is unbelievably important right now. You would be stunned. I mean, we used to live in a day where you could come into a room of high schoolers, start talking about the Bible, mention Jonah, and they knew who you were talking about. You'd be stunned. Um, and, and this isn't just us. It's not like we're failing. Like we were talking with Spencer Thorpe, a good friend of ours who's a youth pastor over at uh, Community Bible in Central Point. And he was saying how he had just done a gathering with some guys and, and he was talking about Jonah and there were these kids like, who? He was in a fish? Like they had no understanding. They had never even heard that story. And so to be able to take and work our kids systematically through the scriptures over and over and over is important because the culture that we lived in where everybody sort of had some sort of working knowledge of the scripture, that culture doesn't exist anymore. And so it's an awesome opportunity and, and huge responsibility to do that with our kids. Um, we do that all the way up through junior high. On Wednesday nights, they work through some of that stuff again. But Wednesday nights is mostly like repetitive, but that's changing. I don't want to let too much of a cat out of the bag. Um, but we're actually working on getting an Awanas program up and running here at Heritage. Um, I saw some of your faces light up, so that means you have to help. We just took a picture of everyone that just went, ooh, but that's a big thing. You've seen it before, right? That's a, it's an amazing program, scripture, memory, all this stuff, but it takes a lot of work. So man, if you've been a part of those or if your kids, you, you're like, ah, man, I want my kids on that, please go talk to Brent. The sooner we have people in place, the sooner we can unroll that. So Brent, you're welcome. Uh, you can buy me lunch later at the airport. Um, but also um, our high schoolers, uh, Pastor Jeremy has been working them through. They've done systematic studies through Matthew, Mark, Romans, and Acts. They just recently concluded a six-month student question series where the students themselves had different questions about the scriptures and life and stuff like that, and they spent six months just working through those. And um, right now, they're doing a Bible overview series where they're just getting the overall, like studying the Bible, you'd say from 30,000 feet instead of like verse by verse, if that makes sense. Um, and then coming up after that, they're, gonna, they're about to start a series when they finish this one on studying youth in the Bible. 
Like, how does God use young people in the scriptures and working through the whole of scripture, studying these things? And then we have so much more. There's men's and women's Bible studies. I'd love to see more men's studies. I'm praying for that in the future moving forward, but there's men's and women's studies. Um, Jeremy and I were just talking this week about doing more retreats and even just Saturday morning workshops where people can come in and maybe things that are more particular like parenting or marriage or whatever, Um, but just trying to increase the amount of, if you will, equipping and teaching and resources that we're putting in you guys' hands. We've even given tons of books away, which I've gotten away from that, right? I just realized that. I got to get on christianbook.com and get some books in here. But, um, but just constantly trying is the role of the church to put resources in your hands so that you can serve God to the praise of his glory. And so we take high priority on that and the accurate teaching of scripture. I got to speed it up. Number three, heritage, as important as formal teaching is, there's more to equipping. Heritage is called to disciple making. Um, we believe that ministry does not end in just sharing the gospel. Um, for a lot of times in, in modern Western Christianity, we would do like the bigger revivals, or, or I was part of a church where they did the altar calls, and you get people to come forward at the end of every service. And a lot of times, not every church, but a lot of churches, it was like, we got them, they're saved, now let's go get some more. But when you, when you look at the scriptures, it doesn't really work that way. And that's, once you're a friend, if you've got a friend that comes to Jesus, your work has only begun. The idea is discipleship. First of all, I'll say this. Most of the people who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, it seems to me, I could be wrong, I haven't studied on this, but it seems to me most of those people, it sort of happens like almost, almost organically. I don't know how to explain that, but like less and less do I see like they had that moment It's more like they come to an understanding along the way as they're learning and as they're walking through life with other believers that it just clicks that they believe. It's not so much an evangelistic, a guy gave an invitation and I walked forward, but more and more it's like as people are just walking through life with one another, it's almost like you just look and you're like, man, he's like worshiping, that guy's saved, I didn't even know it. And that seems to be happening in my conversations with other pastors in the valley, more and more and more. That's called discipleship. That's the, the, the Great Commission says, go into the world and make disciples, not so much converts, disciples. And so the example of this, obviously, is Jesus. And so what did Jesus do? He had 12 guys, primarily. I mean, he had others that were following him too, but he devoted himself to 12 guys, and he walked through life with these 12 guys. And the vast majority of the learning and the growth that the apostles gained from Jesus was not in a synagogue or church setting. It was more as they were walking along the road and Jesus would say, hey guys, come here. See these lilies? Let me tell you something about God relating to these lilies. And he was teaching them as they went through life together. And they made a lot of mistakes and he would work with them through that. That's disciple making. And so we believe here at Heritage that our job is not just to get someone to raise their hand in a prayer and say, I believe, but but that the church's job is to walk through life with people, making disciples, encouraging disciples teaching, training them up to do the work of Jesus. And one of the primary places this happens, which leads us to number four in our last one, heritage values genuine community. And I believe that this might be one of the most overlooked parts of this call to equipping. And it's this idea. Um, Christians, everybody that's Christian, say amen. amen. Okay, Christians, listen. You haven't been saved into an organization right? You've been adopted into a family. 
That's a gigantic difference, okay? You have not been saved into an organization. You did not join a club. You were saved and adopted into the family of God, into a close, tight-knit community. That's the essence of Christianity, that we are family now in this room. That's the reality of it. And so what we believe is that we need, as part of our discipleship and part of our growth, the scriptures make clear, we need honest, genuine community that practices authenticity, transparency, sincerity, accountability, repentance, forgiveness, commitment to the body of believers. And we believe that this is a major tool of sanctification or growth into the image of Christ. And we do this primarily through huddle groups here. It's, it's certainly the, the main, if you will, flagship vessel. Um, but it needs to happen in, in every believer's life, whether they're part of huddle groups or not. You need community. And that's a, that's a tough lesson to learn in a, in a world that is so um, built on individuality. But community is vital and it is mandated in Scripture. Um, and, and here, let, let me go back for just a second. I, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up. But let me go back, if you will, to this idea of how the church throughout history has tended to isolate power, authority, and ministry in the hands of a few rather than the body as a whole. So I talked to you about the Catholic Church a little bit. Have you heard of the Reformation? The Reformation, which is kind of the birth of the Protestant church, of which we are a product, was a pushback against a lot of that mentality. It was a pushback against the Catholic church, against some of their form of ministry, some doctrine that was false doctrine, and the hoarding of power, the hoarding of the scriptures, all of these things. It was a push away from all of that. That was the Reformation. And as a result, a lot of times, this is a human tendency. When we see something that we don't like, and we want to get away from it, we do have a tendency to let the pendulum swing sometimes way too far to the other side. That's a pretty human nature kind of a thing. And there's areas that we've done this with regards to the Reformation in the Catholic Church, or one in particular, and that's this. When the Catholic Church was supreme, everyone had to go to the priest to be their mediator between God and man, correct? Correct. If you wanted to confess your sins, you went to the priest. The baptisms were by the priest. The teaching was by the priest. Everything was the dependent on the priest. And when the Reformation happened, they pushed away from that. And when they did, they completely ditched the idea of the priest as being the mediator. Now, that sounds right because we're Protestants, doesn't it? But here's the thing. Is it biblical? Because Peter tells us in his epistle that we are now a national or a universal what? Priesthood. God never intended that the priest office be removed completely. What he did is he opened recruiting. And so he has expanded. So that's why the book of James says what? Confess your sins what? One to another. And so a lot, what we have done, especially in our culture, is we've pushed away from that mentality and said, I don't need anyone's help for my faith and my growth. And that is absolutely not biblical. You are designed to live in tight community and to grow from one another, with one another, and help one another in growth. We bear one another's burdens. We intercede on behalf of one another. We confess our sins one to another. We come to the communion table with one another. In other words, we operate in the priestly function in everything that we do. Instead of everything being dependent on one priest, the change really was is that suddenly everything we do becomes priestly. You understand the difference? 
And so as a result, what's the point of that when you're alone? Who bears your burdens when you're not in community? Who do you confess sin to? Who holds you accountable? How do you grow in those things? And if the Bible has given us evangelists and prophets 